So let me get right into it. My guest is uh, is a, is Peter Dorico, uh, somebody who I've gotten to know over the years. Uh, uh, Peter and I, uh, I think we first met doing a an event in Washington D.C. It was uh, titled "From Doctrine to Declaration." It was a a conference on the uh, the doctrine of Christian discovery and uh, and the, the Declaration on the. Uh, on the rights of indigenous people. So let me go ahead and, and uh, introduce uh, uh, Peter Drico, who is a, a former uh, law professor to, uh, specializing in Indian law at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Uh, Peter Drico, thank you for joining Shawnee and I here on, uh, on Let's Talk. Let, let's get right into it because there's, there's a lot to talk about. There's so much going on. You and I, first off, just so, so people are aware, you and I do stay somewhat in touch because we're part of a listserv where... Uh, you know, I, I hate to describe everything in terms of, you know, factions or spectrum or, or whatever else, but you and I are on a listserv that's uh, that's dedicated towards the doctrine of Christian discovery, kind of exposing the effects and, and trying to combat it and trying to overcome the uh, the effects of it and that kind of thing. But you, yourself and, and Stephen Newcomb and, and myself, we find ourselves on one end of, of the conversation that really talks about the things that we should be doing today to decolonize at least, at very least, our language, and you know, uh, you know, this is something that Stephen spends a great deal of time talking about in terms of the words that we use and uh, and how they matter and how they how it affects us. And so, this is kind of where you, where you and I and Stephen, you know, probably uh, are on one end of that argument or, or, or debate, I guess, where others are are always trying to talk talk about being more tolerant of. Uh, of, of some of those those terms, whether it's tribe or Indian or, you know, frankly, some of the other uh, names and titles that have been imposed upon us. I, I sometimes make light of the fact that we have Native peoples who go by the name of certain of things like St. Regis Indians. I mean, what the hell is a St. Regis Indian? Or, you know, I think about territories called Lac de Flambeau. I mean, not exactly a Native sounding place, you know. So, uh, and I'm not criticizing the people. I'm saying, when do we start to to move, you know, towards uh, identifying ourselves rather than being uh, identified by others? And you and I have participated uh, in quite a bit in in some of that conversation, as has Stephen Newcomb. Yep, uh, and actually, for people that wanted to dig deep into uh, where Steve is coming from, his book "Pagans in the Promised Land" uh, goes beyond deeper than just words. It goes into cognitive structures, so that when we're using words, we're invoking cognitive structures. So. The discussion that uh, you just referred to that we're part of, that listserv, people are talking about voting. And so you say, okay, voting, to vote, to not vote, that's the words. Uh, and in, in kind of ordinary American discourse, you know, if you vote, you're good. If you don't vote, you're bad. Or, you know, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but that sort of thing. No, not by much, though. That is really No, it's not much. <laughs> so if you say, well, what does voting mean? Uh, what are the implications of voting? What is the intention of voting? Uh, what does voting uh, uh, invoke in, in terms of uh, political uh, power, if anything? Then you're getting deeper. And, and so when I just referred to pagans in the promised land, it doesn't deal with voting, but it deals with the way that the words that people use to talk about uh, native peoples, native nations, uh, color their thinking and confine their thinking and reveal their thinking. So when somebody talks about a tribe, for example, they're invoking a word that has been used to diminish the international status of indigenous peoples around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, when they, when, as you said a minute ago, when they invoke a name, even if they're members of this body 
called St. Regis, uh, they're invoking a name which was applied to them by outsiders. So why are they invoking that name? Do they understand what the name signifies? Do, do they understand that the name carries a colonial past and brings it into the present so that we're still living in that colonial time? All of those uh, kinds of, of concerns are what, you, as you were saying a minute ago, what a few of us are trying to deal with inside the context of a discussion group that, uh, for the most part, seems to me to be interested in a kind of a conventional thinking about what is the significance of voting, what's the significance of citizenship. These are really contested terms. They have been contested for quite a long time. Uh, if I can give another book plug, and this one I, is a person that I'm not really uh, well acquainted with, but a, a professor at Amherst College, Kiara Vigil, B-I-G-I-L, uh, just came out with a new book called Indigenous Intellectuals, and the subtitle is Sovereignty, Citizenship, and the American Imagination, 1880 to 1930. So there you see these, just in the title of the book, the linking up of the notion of citizenship with the notion of people's imagination. And I find that I think what's most perplexing to me is not that somebody would disagree with me. My God, people disagree with me all the time, and I disagree with other people. That's normal. That's, that's what real conversation is all about. But what gets me is the is not so much a disagreement, but a failure to engage in any real discussion beyond saying, oh, I disagree with you. I think people should vote. And I have just said maybe people, why are people voting? Well, there's no real in inquiry into what does voting mean. It just left at the surface level. And there's so much of politics, not just in the U.S. at this point, but around the world, that's left at that superficial A versus B, you know, red versus blue, uh, one side versus another side with no engagement. And it seems well, and, to me and I, and I got to get back to, to one, of, one of the things that, that Stephen um, emphasizes when, when referring to the doctrine of Christian discovery is, is the doctrine of domination. The whole idea that from its onset, it was about um, essentially, and, and I don't think I'm, you know, exaggerating. This isn't, you know, this isn't hyperbole to suggest that the, the intent was to, was always and still is to make us go away. And when I say go away, I don't mean murder us perhaps anymore, although we still have issues relating to missing and murdered indigenous women and, and a host of other things, but, but certainly to diminish our identity and our distinction. And this is where the voting and the citizenship, I mean, when you, when you think about uh, what, you know, what genocide really is, it's, it's about uh, creating the conditions where people cease to exist, where we yeah. talk about denationalizing, stripping away somebody's uh, character and then replacing it with, uh, with, with, a, with a, you know, supplanting it with a national character. And we talk about um, uh, uh, Carl, um, um, uh, draw a blank here, uh, 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 not, not Lipke, um, I'm sorry, you, you cited him in your last... Uh, the, well, Lemkin. Lemkin, uh, Lemkin, I'm sorry, Lemkin. L-E-M-K-I-N, Lemkin, the guy that, that uh, defined the word genocide concept of genocide. Yeah. The, the, uh, as a matter of fact, the reason I, this is re what, uh, John, uh, what you're referring to for, for the people listening to this, I just uh, put out a little column on Indians.com, that's with the Indians with a Z, uh, .com about the brief from the United States in the current Supreme Court case of Carpenter v. Murphy, and it's a question, when John was talking about he gets questions about what's it like to live on Indian territory, there's a case in the Supreme Court right now where the existence of Creek Nation territory and other of the so-called five nations 
uh, are being challenged by the state of Oklahoma, saying it doesn't exist anymore. Indian Territory doesn't exist uh, legally. We wipe it out. Um, so uh, the brief that the U.S. filed on the side of Oklahoma, not on the side of the Creeks. Which is, uh, which is I think, a point worth noting, because yes. the, the, the so-called trust responsibility, usually in a case where, where Native people are uh, you know, pitted against the state in any way, the the uh, amicus brief or the amicus brief comes in usually from the federal government supporting the native people, not necessarily supporting the state against them. Which is, I mean, and I say usually, not without exception. But the, so that's even a little bit strange here. Yes, it is. In fact, it gives you. It should. That's another word then, where you say, well, what does trust mean? If, you know, if, mm-hmm. if trust is not a concept that you can trust, well, then you're in a little bit of an Alice in Wonderland loop there. Uh, but to come back to this brief, the U.S. Uh, it comes down on the side of Oklahoma, and the U.S. brief, which you can read online, if you go to the column that, in, that I just wrote in Indians.com, you can get links to it. You can get links to the amicus brief, and you can read. They have page after page citing all the various things that the U.S. has done to try to eradicate the Creek Nation and the other uh, so-called five uh, civilized tribes. And eradicate is the U.S. word. Abolish is the U.S. word. Uh, those are... Those are terms uh, abolishing them as a people that Lemkin, the guy who created the definition of genocide, was using to define that word. Lemkin was very clear. He said genocide does not just mean going in and killing a lot of people. It means undermining their existence as a group, their economic and political existence as a self-defined group. And he gave various examples of it. And if you read the examples that Lemkin gave, this is back in the 1940s, uh, 30s and 40s, when the Nazis were coming into power. Uh, you read the definitions that Lemkin gives for the definition of genocide, and you, then you read them right next to the amicus brief that was just filed, this right now Supreme Court term. You say, they're exactly the same action. So in other words, you read that brief from the U.S., and you say, the U.S. has just confessed to genocide attacks against the Creek Nation. Well, and worse put, than that, they're, they're making, they're, they're, they're saying that their genocide was not only effective, but that it, but it, that, but that it gives legal merit to stripping, uh, you know, to, to confirming that stripping of the land and, uh, and yeah. all of that. I mean, it, it actually justifies and, and tries to legalize the act of genocide. Exactly, exactly. And it's so startling to me. This is an example of things that are happening almost completely invisible for the most part. I, I don't, I don't know anybody else. I didn't see any other brief in that case filed by any other party that pointed this out and said, wait a minute, this is a very bizarre brief the U.S. has filed here. I didn't see anybody pointing that out. Other than a column that I wrote, I haven't seen that. Maybe it's out there. It'd be great if there's other people out there pointing to this, but it's happening right in front of us, and we're not seeing it. People are not seeing it. It's like, wait a minute. Uh, what happened to this whole thing about the U.S., federal Indian law, trust relationship, guardian, you know, all the rest of that? What happened to that? What does that actually mean? Well, here we see that what it means to the U.S. in 2018 in regards to an actual case is uh, the U.S. is trying to rub these people out. It tried a whole lot of things to rub them out, and we're going to still try right now in this case to rub them out. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, again, in in this application of the word trust, it is not trust as a virtue. It is it is yeah. it is a legal term talking about who has custody. I mean, and, and it's ironic yeah. that this is you know an Oklahoma case because you know, you know when I think about what the Osage murders were all about, here were a wealthy people, an affluent people because of oil that that um, the federal government was saying 
we're going to place a guardian for each one of you. And and in in many instances, those guardians were were killing the 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 very people who they were uh, who they were supposed to be the trustees for. You know, uh, to take their their well rights, their head rights. Uh, it's it's the history is just so. I mean, you can't even make this stuff up. I mean, it, it is it is that bizarre. And and I think this is why, you know, this this case that you're talking about in Oklahoma. Look, I've seen that story a few. I've seen it in a, a couple of he- headlines. And the way it always gets cast is, um, oh, Oklahoma. You know, a third of Oklahoma could go back to the Indians. And you know, and and it's almost like this, like this. Um, uh, fear mongering that gets that gets put out in, into the press. I remember when the when when Obama first gave his really kind of pathetic and tepid uh, uh, support for the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Fox News immediately says, "Oh yeah, next thing you know, Obama's going to be giving the Indians the country back." I mean, that's the way they frame any any time we try to defend ourselves, uh, defend our distinction or our, our autonomy, or <laughs> heaven forbid, we should uh, try to defend uh, the title to our lands. We have people not just on the right either. I mean, we have people on the left who get real concerned about what it would mean if Native people were at were able to assert their freedom in a way that uh, that that doesn't squarely put them under the, the jurisdiction or under submission to the United States. Yes, which is why, in other words, it's a continuing colonial relationship. Uh, I wanted to add a couple of details to what you were just talking about the trustee relationship. You're right. First of all, it's not like. A, a trust like I trust you, but it's trustee. It's a typical legal relationship where somebody is a beneficiary and they have a guardian, uh, let's say a, somebody who has got a, uh, money that's going to come to them from their uncle, and the uncle says, well, you're too young, uh, I'm going to make it into a trust, and when you're 21, you can have it. In the or meantime. if you're incompetent. Yeah, right? or, exactly. So, <laughs> so the, But the, the laws that would apply in that case, if the, if the trustee... In that case, I was just giving as a kind of a hypothetical, there's the rich uncle, etc. If the trustee was found to mismanage that money, the trustee could be found in violation of the trust, in violation of the rights of the beneficiary, and there could be legal action taken against him. Whereas in the case of the federal trustee, so-called, over Native nations' lands, clear. the Supreme Court's been very clear, those laws, those laws that apply to all other forms of trust uh, documents, trust relationships, don't apply in the so-called Indian trust relationship. And the Navajo case a few years back, maybe five years ago, was that was stated explicitly. The appeals court said that this case, if this was involved in normal private law, guardianship law, this case would be completely slam dunk for the Navajo, but it's not. It's under federal Indian law, and under federal Indian law, those rules don't apply. There is no real responsibility that the U.S. has taken on. Was that the the case involving the uh, the payment for uranium and all that stuff? Yeah, the payment for the coal that was that had been taken. Okay, right. and you know, John, you're familiar with City of Cheryl, another Supreme Court case where, after multiple years of litigation, the Onondaga, having been Oneida, Oneida, sorry, Oneida, mm-hmm. been up to the Supreme Court uh, twice, and the Supreme Court finding in their favor said, "Yes, you have a right to assert rights to this land. There's a continuing re- relationship to the land, etc." When they got there the third time, finally trying to put a you know signed, sealed, and delivered on this, the Supreme Court said, "Oh, but the Christian discovery, although they didn't call it Christian, this is the, another one of these little you know kind of concealing what's really going on. They call it the doctrine of discovery without really referring to the legal basis in Christian laws." So the Supreme Court says the doctrine of discovery says that the U.S. owns this land, 
and the Oneida waited too long to, to claim it. So, sorry, you don't get it. Even though you have proven you have a right, even though we said you could prove that you had the right under normal law, land law, uh, under federal Indian law, we're going to pull the rug out. Well, and, and this is a land that the Oneidas per- purchased. This wasn't yes. like suing to gain custody of no. land. This is land that they purchased. They were actually living on. They were they operated businesses on. These things have been yep. existing in existence for years. And it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg of all ju- justices who yep. cites this. And then she, you know, not only does she cite that doctrine of discovery, and she actually cites it in in her first footnote, basically yep. saying. No, the land became vested in the sovereign one. You know, the, the lands previously occupied or occupied by Native people just went to, went to the discovering nations. She doesn't say how. She just says it does under, under this doctrine without any explanation. And then she does, like you said, she says there's a statute of limitations or what they call latches. Should they waited too long? But she also cited something else. She cited this. And I don't, are you familiar with this doctrine of impossibility? Yeah, <laughs> she she cites something. I mean, it sounds absurd, but she says it's impossible for a native people to reclaim uh, to to regain custody of land, essentially. And what she's from from her point of view, from the point of view of, of the federal government, yeah, it's impossible. You know, it's like somebody but says, uh, I, well, you know, the, the, I, I'm going to do this, and you say, oh, it's impossible. Why is it impossible? Because I don't want it to happen. That's why it's impossible. Well, and this is kind of my my point with this thing. So she says that 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 there's. You know, and she cites a, a, a I don't know a, a case out out west or something like that. But two hundred miles down the road, the Senecas actually have a, a provision in it in an act of Congress to settle the Salamanca lease settlement, um, where the Senecas are able to take land and not into trust, but into direct you know fee title uh, ownership of land uh, in in their ancestral land. So two hundred miles down the road. The Senecas have a have a clear path for reclaiming land, and she cites this doctrine of impossibility that says, um, you know, that it, that it's impossible. And of course, the, that doctrine was really based on displacing a bunch of people through a land claim, which wasn't the case here because this land was. I mean, it, it shows you how far out of their way they go to to stand by this, you know, again this this doctrine of domination, and there's no other way to really describe it. So I want to go circle back to our beginning about well, this. Well, Peter, let me let me do this here because we're at the bottom there. Let me take a brief break. Um, we'll do that, and uh, we'll we'll come right back, uh, and we'll get back to this this case. And I want to get into the Mashpee case too. So we'll do yes, that yes. When, when we come back. Yeah. All right. This is John Kane with Shawnee Rice. Say hi, Shawnee. Hello. Smoke. Okay. <laughs> I'm taking a lot of information. <laughs> and uh, and our guest uh, Peter Dorico during this mini fun drive. So we'll take a break, and we'll be right back. Ever since you 
That's uh, since she went away. That's uh, that's a Murray Porter song from his CD. Uh, songs living life played and that's a uh, a song that he dedicated to missing and murder indigenous women uh so i i always like to play uh, some of these tracks that, that have a real um real meaning before behind it his music is uh, incredibly entertaining but it also has uh packs a bit of a punch to it um i i take these these opportunities because not only do i have a story to tell but i have uh, news and information to to share with you. And that's why we bring in somebody like Peter Dorico, who has been really at the forefront. And, and Peter, the work that you do, oftentimes you're, you're not, you're not a, um, one of those lawyers uh, who uh, are negotiating gaming compacts for native people. You are, you really are one of those guys who are in the trenches fighting for native sovereignty um, and, and, and establishing, you know, um, um, our fight against the uh, where state laws and federal laws are being uh, improperly used against us, and I think that's a fair, good, fairly good characterization. Yeah, uh, you know the um, the major work that that I've done in terms of actual litigation has been around hunting and fishing rights and land issues. So you're right. Uh, you know, I, I certainly am aware of some of the casino stuff, and, and I may have given some advice once or twice to somebody, but it's. I've never litigated that. I don't do any, you know, that's not the focus of my work. So uh, what I realized early on is that the fact that I had a teaching position at UMass Amherst meant that I could take cases where people couldn't afford to pay anybody because I could just fold that up into my academic work and say, well, that's what I'm doing. That's the research and writing I'm doing. Well, and unfortunately, you know, all the, even with the success of things like gaming and, and other areas of economic development uh, that that has been prosperous or, or successful on native territories. Eventually, it all came, comes back to the same argument as, as with hunting and fishing. I mean, it, it, we, we find ourselves running up against a wall, uh, no matter what. We, uh, that wall of domination that, uh, that you know, finds its origins in the doctrine of Christian discovery, but, um, you know, that, that st- still can't find its way out of, uh, you know, the, the briefcases of folks like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, you know, the, a liberal darling on the court. Um, or, or any of these, these state courts. I mean, we, we see ICWA being challenged, the Indian Child Welfare Act being challenged in, in Texas. And, and, you know, and I even take a position on that, that it's unfortunate that, that we're asking the federal government for, for this kind of protection rather than asserting our, uh, our distinction to say, no, you can't, you're not going to put our children into your, uh, your foster care system or your adoption system. And you were, we're sure as hell not going to let you put us in, in residential schools anymore and that kind of stuff. And, and I think this is where our fight has progressed. But, you know, at the same time, we find ourselves, as you, as you talked about earlier, being caught in, in between these two worlds. Because on one hand, we, we want to talk about our autonomy and our distinction but then, on the other hand, we you know we're going to praise somebody running for for a state or a, or a federal office, or we we get involved in this get out the native vote stuff, which is almost I mean it's it's the antithesis of of uh, asserting ourselves as a distinct people. Yes, exactly. And so another concept talked about words at the beginning at the top of the hour. Plenary power is a is a phrase that's used over and over again to talk about the federal government's relationship to Native peoples is that the federal government claims it has plenary power. And over and over again, you see Native litigators, Native peoples, buying into that. And so you have people going into saying, well, I'm going to run for office because the U.S. has power over us. That's the way they phrase it. Even though there's nothing in the Constitution that says that, it was wholly invented, the idea that that plenary power exists. 
And so I'm going to change that. I'm going to work inside the system of domination. And so exactly, ICWA is an example. The Indian Child Welfare Act is like, oh, well, this is a power the federal government has. And the National Indian, uh, the Gaming Act was is another one. Yeah. You know, before Congress passed the Gaming Act, the Supreme Court had already agreed that Native nations had the right to conduct gaming operations, period. End of story. And so Congress stepped in and said, oh, we're going to change that. We're going to turn now it back. Only- I, mean, I, I say it all the time. The, uh, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act did not legalize Native gaming. In fact, either did the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court just oh. recognized what we were already asserting. Exactly. And so this is, to me, the, the, the way you phrased it just a minute ago, <laughs> asserting uh, your, your independent sovereignty that's where the real work is going to have to happen. And uh, I would like to know when the people who talk about voting is important, that they're participating in the domination system is somehow going to change that domination system. There's not any evidence that I've seen that that works that way. I, you know, the, the colonial regimes around the world, have man, they have mastered the art of involving the colonized people in their own colonization. And it's not the other way around. And so I'm thinking, well, that thinking of, you know, we should vote more is misguided, at least, and maybe wishful thinking, and maybe impossible. Talk about doctrine of impossibility. (laughs) But at a minimum, I would like to hear some examples. Like, somebody show me where uh, there was somebody elected who was, maybe it was uh, Night Horse Campbell, or maybe it was uh, fill in the blank. Well, Night Horse Campbell starts as a Democrat and then ends up being a Republican, and frankly... And and you know, what comes to my (laughs) mind is what Philip Deere said. Philip Deere... Muskogee Creek medicine teacher, great guy, very important. You know, he was uh, influential in in helping me sort things out. And uh, you can see, by the way, a a video interview of him back in the end of the 70s. If you go to YouTube and just look up Philip Deere. Um, But he's, uh, in fact, I think he's, it's in that video. It's included. He, He was talking to some people and he said, you know, we don't go into politics as a good Republican or a good Democrat. He says, we approach the U.S. government on spiritual terms, and he said, and they don't really know how to deal with it. And I think that's exactly right, so that the, the power that's based on a spiritual groundedness in your own lands is, is, is what it is you're, you should be standing on. When I say you, I'm, I'm not in that circumstance. I mean, I've worked with there. I was an attorney for Navajos. I've worked with Western Shoshone. I've worked with Mashpee Wampanoag. I've worked with Narragansett. But I'm not part of any one of those nations. But when we talk and when I talk to the traditional people and I talk to traditional teachers like Philip Deere, like Corbin Harney, like Slow Turtle, this is where I hear that deep thinking coming from, is stand on your own land. Stand on well, your I, own. I don't know how participating in the ruling class doesn't uh, helps us. Uh, to me, it validates what they're, what they're doing, because they can say, oh, look, we even have some Native people here. But, you know, as yeah. much as people were raving about the two women who uh, just be- became uh, members of Congress or who will become members of Congress— there were already two men sitting there. They happened to be Republicans and said, uh, from, from Oklahoma. We can go back. When you're talking about the five civilized tribes and, and some of what, um, what took place in Oklahoma when, when all, some of that land was lost, you had somebody like Charles Curtis who exactly. was from Kansas who was one of the architects of, of stripping away con. much of that land. And, and he was, yeah, so he was, he was a native. Con. His mother was caught, and he was, you know, so he was so-called mixed blood, whatever that means, but he grew up with his grandmother, his grandparents on his mother's side, on reservation land until it was wiped out by the law. And so then when he finally gets involved in politics, and he ended up being a vice president, vice of, the president United- of the United States. Most people don't yeah, even know well, that. Wait a minute. That's a pretty high position. <laughs> uh, how come everything didn't change? Well, he was actually, he had already, in the process of getting there, 
he had changed. He had sold out, uh, you know, uh, over half the, the land of, uh, of Oklahoma. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and again, there were people who had hope. I, I remember even reading the, uh, the uh, Killers of the Flower Moon about the Osage murder. Some of those folks were asking for Charles Curtis's help. Didn't get yes, any, but, but they, they were asking. So this, is, I mean, this gives act, an example, right? Yeah, the name that, that, uh, that act, the Curtis Act, that extended the Dawes Act, the Allotment Act, to those so-called five civilized tribes, that, that's part of that brief I was referring to a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. The U.S. is saying this is one of the genocide. Of course, they don't call it genocide, but they, this is one of the efforts that we did to disestablish, abolish, and terminate these people was, this, was the Curtis Act. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. Hey, let's uh, let's skip over to the to the Mashpee case. I talked about yeah. this a little bit on the yeah. show before, and uh, and you, your article on it also in, on uh, Indians dot com. Uh, it, it, I think it, it hits most of the points right on the head, and and, and I think the the most significant thing, and it gets down to the thing that you and I and and uh, Stephen are always talking about is this identity issue. Because when the United States can say. Well, we're going to tell you what an Indian is, and we're going to tell you whether you meet that definition. In fact, even on the Canadian side, my, my friends up in Aquasasti are going through this right now. They're, they're looking at a land claim settlement proposal, and right in the definitions, it says this, the two parties are – one is the, the queen, represented by you know, the uh, Indian Northern Affairs – and the uh, Mohawks of Aquasasti, a band as defined by the Indian Act. So you yep. have their laws defining not only who we are, but but how we are and what what our circumstances. And you know this leads right to where the Mashpee are are, are facing what they're facing right now. Yes, and and uh, you know it is really a conundrum when you think about it. And I think of it like Alice in Wonderland, or maybe even more intense. It's like George Orwell's 1984. You, you're you're speaking newspeak. You're speaking a, a made up language that's designed to constrict your ability to think at all. Because they have to show, according to the federal government, that they were dominated in 1934 in order that they can have a reservation today. They've, that's yeah. pretty far. And, and uh, it's, it kind of reminds me of the 1823 Supreme Court case that started federal Indian law, where the doctrine of Christian discovery was declared by the Supreme Court of the U.S. as being U.S. law. And in there, they said that because the colonists brought Christianity and, and superiority uh, to the U.S. They owned the lands, and, and that uh, in compensation to the native inhabitants, they would give them Christianity and U.S. civilization. You wait a minute. They came in with domination, but then in compensation, they gave them more domination. Well, that, and that, there's no other way to describe uh, both, no. both what, uh, what Christianity, the effect of Christianity, or the effect, I mean, by definition, what, what civilization is, is the idea of imposing a different cultural standard upon, uh, upon another people. I mean, it's almost yeah. a textbook definition. And this is where it's another time just to give a shout-out to Steve Newcomb's work, because he has been the most consistent you know, and clear about... Just reducing all of these words, there's a hundred and more, you know, there's hundreds of, of words that get used that all of them actually mean domination. So right. you say conversion. Somebody got converted to Christianity. Well, conversion is a legal word for theft. And if I take your property and use it for my benefit, I have converted it. Well, that's an old definition. People haven't heard of that before. So they think conversion sounds like, well, that's a pretty harmless thing. Somebody changed how they believe. No. Their, their mind was stolen. That's yeah. what that means. Sure. So that's a form of domination. So you, over and over again, you, you can do this kind of, uh, it's almost like a translation. You're, you're taking these terms that are used 
in the dominant language, in the dominant legal system, and you're penetrating them. You're seeing through them. What do they actually mean? And I find that there's, you know, tremendous value in doing that, and very often it's not done. Just the surface words are used without any real sense of what do they mean, where did they come from, what are their implications. And so the Mashpee are up against this, and somebody, you know, it's like, well, they have to show they're Indian. And somebody might say, well, yeah, I mean, if you're not Indian, you don't have a right. You say, wait a minute, wait, let's back up two or three seconds. Who are they showing this to? Who is it that's making the decision? How did they get in that position? You know, et cetera. Well, and, and here's the thing that I had, the biggest problem that I have with this whole thing with the, with the Mashpee you're going through. Of course, what, what the United States defines as an Indian or Indian tribe is a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. I mean, none of, the, none of those words are ours, right? That never says a people, right? Most yeah. of our words translate, more accurately translate to a people than to a tribe, band, or nation, or, or, or Indians. Um, but that's what the definition is. So... And here's the part that, that I found bizarre, and I, and I tried to introduce this into our listserv conversation, but nobody really bid on it the way that I thought they would. I mean, we did a little bit, but if in 1924 the United States passes a law that, that declares all Native people citizens, which is, which is kind of bizarre because that meant that the, the 14th Amendment didn't apply to us already, right? Because they're already claiming our land. So they, 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 they know that they're passing laws that don't work. So they, they try to do this thing, you know, coming out of slavery uh, that, you know, says, you know, makes all people citizens. Right. But but they're still not talking about us. So then they passed this law in 1924 declaring all native people within the United States to be citizens. And then 10 years later, in 1934, they have to pass another law where they where there seems to be some doubt about whether we really are U.S. citizens or not, because or, or and of course, many of us rejected that anyway. But so none, so none of their, law, their laws really support each other for a, a legal system that's based on precedent. If you look at you know, previous laws, how could the Mashpee not have met that standard for being you know, uh, under U.S. jurisdiction if 10 years prior the United States claimed that all Native people were citizens? I'm not saying that we were, but in, on their argument, how does it fail? Yes, and you know what? So we talked about Ginsburg, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg being the liberal darling, and, and she's the one that, that torpedoed the Oneida case mm-hmm. and, and quoted the, the, you know, Johnson against McIntosh doctrine uh, without revealing what it was based on. But guess who on the Supreme Court is the one who's been clearest about the irrationality of federal Indian law? Is Clarence, Clarence Thomas. Thomas. Yep. And it's unbelievable. He's actually said in, in an, uh, an opinion he wrote in a, in a case involving, you know, Native issues. U.S. US v. Lara, uh, Billy yeah. Joel Lara uh, versus... Uh, exactly. Yep. Yep. He also followed up with a case in, in Bryant, B-R-Y-A-N-T. He said federal Indian law is schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. He, he described it in more detail, but that was his, in a nutshell, he said federal Indian law is schizophrenic. And this is what you were pointing to, the, between the 1924 Citizenship Act and the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act. And think about these names. Indian reorganization is like the U.S. government is going to reorganize the Native peoples. You know, what is the presumption there? So you have layer on layer of irrationality and contradiction. And so I look at Clarence Thomas's opinions as being an open invitation Rather than running away, people shy away like, oh, he's too conservative, he's right-wing. I'd like to meet him head-on, face-to-face, and say, you know, uh, let's have a good discussion, because I think it's schizophrenic, too. 
What do you think of the consequences of that? And we might disagree on the consequences for sure. Maybe not, but we don't start off but one, you know, being at what seems to be the same place, except for the fact we start off in the same place saying this law is screwed up. Well, and Thomas actually goes farther than just saying it's schizophrenic. He actually says that he can find no place in the Constitution that supports the whole plenary powers doctrine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because, you know, when he, when he cites, I mean, people when, uh, that, that created that, that, you know, that notion that the Congress, that it was the founding fathers of, of the country um, wanted the, found, um, the Congress to have the, this power over Native people. They cite um, the, uh, the, the Commerce Clause, which doesn't say anything like that. All the Commerce Clause says is that Congress shall have the power uh, in and among several states with foreign nations and with Indian tribes to regulate commerce with, uh, regulate commerce with them, not of them or for them. Uh, so that doesn't create a plenary, uh, an absolute power, which plenary power means absolute power. They, they cite, and then, then if you cite the, the apportionment clause, uh, you, you can tell, you can clearly see that we were not represented by Congress. So there's nothing there. The world mentioned three times in the, in the U S constitution originally, and that's in the, the apportionment clause and it refers to us as Indians, not taxed, meaning we would not be apportioned congressional representation um, so that has us outside their constitution. There's the, uh, there's the, the commerce clause that lays us right beside foreign nations in terms of, uh, uh, you know, how we, we were to be recognized. And then there's the treaty clause and that's not, and, and the treaty clause isn't an exec, uh, a congressional power. It's an executive power. And frankly, one of the things that Clarence Thomas says, it seems to me that Congress uh, asserted more power over Indians when they stripped the executive branch of, uh, of the treaty-making powers, which probably wasn't legal. <laughs> yep, exactly. And you know, uh, John, to add one more thing on that, the, the doctrine of plenary power is actually cited by lawyers who argue supposedly on the side of Native cases. Yeah, I know. Because you have in briefs like the... Uh, Dollar General case or Bay Mills, I forget which one it was right now. I think both of them, actually, yeah. Both of them, but in in one of them, there was a separate brief filed by a group of law professors who claimed to be experts in federal Indian law, and they start right off saying, well, of course Congress has plenary power over natives. We don't have full power. And I'm thinking, well, when I was in law school, I was taught you don't start off an argument by shooting yourself in the foot. That, That that's not a strong uh, position. Uh, that's shooting yourself in the face. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. So, uh, so when we think about that, so Scalia, by the way, would be, of course, he's dead now, but he would be another one to have had a conversation with because in two different cases he acknowledged that the Constitution does not apply to Native nations. They were not party to the Constitution. And so you say, okay, you put together a couple of these right-wing guys. Now, maybe they were trying to destroy Native nations, but in the process they opened up for real serious question, the framework that's used to dominate. Yeah, I, I don't think Clarence Thomas is, is really necessarily an advocate for us, but I think you're absolutely right. In fact, he says it in that in that opinion in U.S. v. Lara that um, he would be very open to reexamining this stuff because you know he thinks that that, that schizophrenia has to be solved. So that yes. that's the yep. reason why he had an opinion. Yeah, but the, well, he he wrote um, he wrote a a separate he. He was with the affirming affirming group that that, that just to give a, a, a brief overview of what happened with Billy Joel Lara. Billy Joel Lara was a bad guy. He beat the crap out of his wife. He was an abuser. So there was a uh, a case by which he um, uh, 
he she had a restraining order against him. She was native. He was native, but she lived on another territory. He wasn't supposed to go there. He went there, um, had another incident. Uh, a poli tribal police showed up and they arrested him. Uh, and in the process, he he struck one of those tribal police officers. They charged him with uh, with assaulting a tribal police officer. He served like 90 days in jail or whatever else. But then the the U.S. attorney charged him again with assaulting a federal officer because one of those tribal police officers was considered a, a Bureau of Indian Affairs um, uh, uh, officer. So he was charged and again. And that's with, why there was a U.S. attorney to begin with? Well, that's that's how, well, the whole case ends up being where, where Billy Joel Lara is saying, is trying to argue. This is like the whole thing gets turned around yeah, backwards. He's, using a double, his, he's arguing that this is double jeopardy. Yeah, he's saying that you can't charge me at the federal level because I was already charged at the, at the, uh, at the tribal level or, or, or whatever. And And so... The U.S. attorney makes the argument that double jeopardy doesn't apply because tribal police do not get their um, full faith and credit or they're, they're, they are, they're, sovereign, they're, they're sovereign, that they're, they're not an extension of the, of the U.S. judicial system. That's what, that's what the U.S. attorney is making mm -hmm. the argument for sovereignty, essentially. Billy Jolera is saying, no, the, the, the tribal police are just uh, are, are underneath um, you know, the, 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 the legal system, underneath the... Um, the the state and the federal, and so um, the he, Billy Joe Lara loses. The argument um, stands that yes, he can be charged with with assaulting a federal officer because fed, uh, the double jeopardy um, uh, out doesn't doesn't apply here. So with Billy Joe Lara losing, it it opened up this big can of worms about well, where does the where do uh, tribal police and tribal courts get their sovereign their their power from, and and so that case. Uh, had you know uh, you know again the dissenting opinion you know offering arguments against sovereignty, but even the affirming opinion wouldn't address the the issues of sovereignty. So so Clarence Thomas offered his own separate affirming opinion that that opened up that can of worms. And incidentally, here's where where that whole case becomes problematic because with the Violence Against Women Act, what they did is they said, well, we're going to establish uh, we're going to grant. Authority with a couple of pilot cases where native courts can uh, can try a non-native um, who is uh, who has assaulted a, a a woman or a domestic violence situation, and I'm thinking now now you're undoing what Bill, what that case U.S. v. Lara case said because that said no they, they already get their they they get their power you know, from their own sovereignty not from the federal government and here you get a situation where. You know, where you if you wanted to argue, if you're if you're a, a white man who says you no, the supreme the the U.S. court system can't subject me to a foreign jurisdiction, that's a well, I think it's a Thirteenth Amendment uh, uh, issue. Well, yes, and so but just to, I know we're getting near the top yeah. of the hour, but I'm thinking that it's in a nutshell what Thomas did is he took advantage. He did that in both that Lar case and the Bryant case. He took advantage of a situation where he could come in as a concurring opinion, so it's not a dissent. Right. And he opens up. He says, you guys have not examined the basis of your thinking. That's basically what he's saying, that you have no rational basis for these decisions. He doesn't disagree with it. He doesn't say, I think you're wrong. But he says that you have not got any clarity about how you can possibly come to this decision. I mean, he even condemns the, the what they call the, all those legislative fixes that were supposed to solve some of the, uh, yeah. the jurisdictional problems. So he, so he, I mean, he says over and over again, it, no, it, it has never been properly. Uh, you know, he he disagrees that the court has ever properly adjudicated native sovereignty cases. Yep. So. Yeah. Well, Peter, I want to thank you. This has been a great hour to have you on. I, I'd right. love to have you back on. You know, some of this stuff is playing out uh, in, in so many different places, and there, there, 
there are not just, you know, legal cases, but there's arguments. And, and what we're doing with, you know, again, with the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples yep. and, and, and all of this stuff, there's so much to talk about. I'd love to have you back. It's been great to we'll catch up with you. Okay, John, it's great to hear you. And Shani, good to hear you. I'm glad you piped up there at the end. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's so much to process and so much it to is. go back. At. Like, there's so much context that you need. But it is, it is. Yeah, and I know yeah. sometimes when John and I talk, we've talked so often about this, we sort of leapfrog over things yeah. that you're like, how did you get from there to there? Yeah. Right, yeah, which is okay. All right, that's uh, that's my friend Peter Dorico from, uh, uh, you know, again, former law professor at uh, University of Mass at, uh, at Amherst um, and uh, still doing some, some great work. And uh, I look for his writing. Check out some of his uh, columns on Indians.com. Uh, he has two, the one on the... Uh, um, uh, the Carpenter case, um, uh, Carpenter versus Murphy, and on the, on the Mashpee case. Look for both of those articles on, on Indians.com. That's Indians with a Z, and uh, you can you can find his writing there.